The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everyone? Welcome into episode six of season three of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factory Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week, I'm handing over the interview duties to Thomas Wendt. But before we get to that, first of all, happy St. Patrick's Day. Those of you who are playing gigs like me, um, have fun, be safe, um, don't drink and drive, um, get your jig on, I guess. <laughs> anyway, uh, happy St. Patrick's Day to everyone who celebrates. Um, just a little bit of news here. Um, once again, we are restocking a bunch of stuff over at DFD. So if you've been looking for something or been waiting for something, uh, now be the time. We do have some um, chrome over brass hoops in stock, and we're going to be now finally carrying those again. I know it was back in season one. I was singing the praises of chrome over brass hoops, and then all of a sudden we had a shortage of supply and we couldn't get them. But we have them now. We have chrome over brass. We also have some nickel over brass. So those are really cool. Nickel is my favorite finish. It's a little bit kind of more more orange brown versus chrome, which is more like a blue white shiny. Anyway, they look great on old drums and new drums. So go check those out, the uh, Nickel Over Brass Hoops. What else? We still have Drum Candy t-shirts on sale. We're going to be probably ordering some new merch soon, but we have the the Oxblood fitted shirt or, uh, you know, worn-in shirt with the full-color Drum Candy logo on it. It's available over on drumfactordirect.com. What else? Um, oh, yeah, the Mark Juliana Masterclass, which is happening on April 29th, Saturday, 4 to 6. We still have a handful of tickets available. Um, so if you're thinking about coming, you might want to book your seat now before they run out. We're capping it at 30. We can't let anybody else in after that. Um, so you can get that at Eventbrite or you can reach out to us at Drum Factor Direct or on Hawthorne Drum Shop's um, Instagram page. They can give you the link. But it's going to be a great time. We'll be there. I'll be there all day. And, and Chris will be there all day. Mark will be there probably most of the day setting up and everything. And then afterwards, we're going to be hanging out. So it's four to six, but it's kind of like an all day event. So um, come hang out. All right, let's get to it. So this week, Tom Went is interviewing Jim White. Jim White is a fantastic drummer and educator. He is currently professor of jazz studies and drum set at the University of Northern Colorado. He has a bachelor's degree from the University of North Texas, where he studied with the great Ed Sof. He has a master's degree from Middle Tennessee State. He spent a number of years in Nashville working that scene, doing a bunch of cool gigs, um, just a few that pop up here, Allison Krauss and Union Station. He's got Willie Nelson, J.D. Souther. Um, and he also toured Mana Ferguson's band and other jazz artists he's worked with, Dick Oates, um, Terrell Stafford, Joey DeFrancesco. I mean, it's a long list. And like I said, now he's currently professor at University of Northern Colorado. So this is a fun chat. I'm going to hand it over to Tom. So see you at the end. All right. We want to welcome everybody back to another edition of the Drum Candy podcast. Such a pleasure to be uh, guest hosting again today. And we have such a, a fantastic guest, the, the wonderful Mr. Jim White, who has had uh, a really amazing career and is still going incredibly strong. Jim, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's such a pleasure to be with you, man. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast here. <laughs> yeah, man. So, you know, I, I thought we could kind of go all the way back with you, man. How did you how did you come to music and how did you come to the drums initially? 
Well, you know, I mean, I just had a fascination with it when I was a kid, you know, like really young. And uh, so uh, I would just play along. I had a little record player at home and, uh, you know, my parents, they they were listening to all different kinds of music, but not necessarily like jazz or R&B. They didn't have like Duke Ellington and Stevie Wonder playing in the house. But one of my favorite records to play along with was this Buck Owens record. Wow. And so, I, I, yeah, so I just used to dig that. And I always liked the drummer. Willie Cantu was the drummer that played on all of that stuff. Of course, wow. I didn't know that at the time. But I love playing along with those uh, records. And then I started getting into you know, uh, Led Zeppelin and Pink, Pink Floyd, a lot of the same stuff that people of our generation, you know, uh, uh, listen to. Yep. And my mom, you know, she just said, well, maybe we should get a teacher. I mean, I'm sure I sound like <laughs> <laughs> And so uh, I, somehow she talked to Paul Yonchin, who was the tempanist in the Atlanta Symphony, mm-hmm. uh, into taking me as a student and i think i was about seven years old which i shouldn't say because i should be a hell of a lot better by now (laughs) nah man (laughs) i think you're doing just fine but i hear you (laughs) so so i studied with him and uh you know i I, maybe i should have become a tempanist but i'm a terrible temp nobody would ever want to hear me play tempany that makes two of us (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, uh, anyways, I, you know, just continued to study and, uh, the drum set used, it was something that I really gravitated to. I studied all the percussion instruments, but I, uh, I seemed to be better at drum set and that's what I was fascinated with. So I started, you know, really just playing along with records. I mean, I, you know, I've just, I still play along with records. I've been doing that my whole life. And mm-hmm. uh, and then I started meeting a lot of musicians in Atlanta and some people that had a great influence on me. Uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to study with uh, Sonny Emery, uh, who's, you know, we all know mm-hmm. and yeah. love. And I just used to go, <laughs> I used to go hear him as much as possible and uh, was able, I guess in the seventh grade, I was able to start taking some lessons with him. And we were working on some of the Jim Chapin and, uh, uh, you know, syncopation and stuff like that. That was my first exposure to to those books. Hmm. Uh, But I would go see him play. I I mean, I would try to play like him. I would try to dress like him, (laughs) you know, just like, you know, as much as possible. And so there was a, a really thriving uh, R&B and funk scene in Atlanta. And I kind of gravitated to some of that music that was coming out of there. Uh, and then I met another great drummer in uh, Atlanta. His name was Jeff Sipe. Mm. And uh, Jeff, uh, you know, plays with everybody, you know, now. And uh, uh, But at the time he was living in Atlanta, had gone to Berkeley, and I met him and uh, he... <laughs> He just had me come over, you know, I would go over after high school to his house and he was living with a couple of great musicians, a bass player named O'Teal Burbridge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and his brother, Kofi, who uh, unfortunately passed away. But I would just go over there. We would play together. I would, uh, you know, they would pull out records and uh 
you know, play records for me, jazz records, Wayne Shorter, you know, Miles Davis. And some of it I was just like, ah, I don't even know what's going on. But they'd give me a stack of records and I would take it home and it'd be like, don't worry, you know, you may not <laughs> dig it right now, but this is heavy and you're going to, you know, you're going to dig it, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then they, both of those guys, O'Teal and Jeff Sipe, started playing with uh, a cat named Colonel Bruce Hampton, and they had a group called the Aquarium Rescue Unit. Wow. And uh, those guys would have me come and uh, uh, play with them, and, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a great freedom in music that I hadn't really experienced before because wow. Bruce would say, all right, you know, I was a young guy, and he'd be like, okay, you go out there and start the show and uh you know just the drums and i'd be like well what is it that you want me to play wow he says play whatever you want you know play whatever wow. you know he would uh you know he those guys exposed me to everything bobby bland and you know uh, uh the meters and all kinds of stuff so i'd go out there and play some groove and then you know they would say okay well the first tune is in d and they would just go out and make up these tunes and uh and it was it was just a great experience because it was just you know true improvisation you know not even just musically but in the prose and the you know the it was really out <laughs> you know in wow life. man but it was a great experience so uh and then when i got into high school uh I, you know i had an opportunity to play with this thing that band this mcdonald's used to sponsor called the mcdonald's jazz band yeah and the cat that ran that band his name is bob kernell and he became one of my mentors and that experience kind of helped me decide to be i knew i wanted to be a professional musician and uh and he's the one that kind of encouraged me to go to school at north texas and uh and then i started studying with ed sof and then you know through some of those connections a lot of different you know i just happened to get a lot of different <laughs> random opportunities and uh you know lived in new york and did a show called the big apple circus up there before oh that was on the road with maynard ferguson's band which is my first time going to europe and japan and sure all places uh and then new york i was there for a year and i thought that's where i always wanted to live and uh this georgia peach just hated pretty much living in new york not necessarily it wasn't the music or anything i was around some great people that taught me a whole lot about music because that particular show, the circus at the time, the band was uh, Ralph Alessi on trumpet. Wow. Curtis Folks was playing trombone. A great uh, saxophone player named Sam Furness. Uh, Duncan Cleary was the guitar player who had done all kinds of sessions. And then Kermit Driscoll played bass. Uh, and yeah. then, you know, with another cat named Gene Torres. So those cats taught me a lot, but I knew wow. that I could not spend the rest of my life just living in new york and that sure. that came that was like a revelation for me and this cat jeff coffin a great saxophone player he had moved to nashville which was really unusual and he you know said hey you need to come down here and check it out and as one thing led to another you know i started doing crystal gales gig i didn't know much yeah. about country music and uh and was in Nashville for many, many years. 
And then I, you know, uh, I never had any intention of entering academia, but uh, somebody talked me into it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's been really the greatest decision that I ever made. I was really skeptical of it. I didn't have eyes to to do that sort of thing. But uh, uh, it worked out really great. I love teaching. I've almost been here 20 years. Wow. I kept a home in Nashville for a long time till about five years ago. And when uh, my wife and I had uh, my son, Oliver, then uh, I finally ended up selling my house because I wasn't going back as much. I wasn't working as much there. And uh, so uh, we live in Colorado. That's our our home full time. And we yeah. love it here. You know, it's, it's yeah. wonderful. That's great, man. That's man. It's really something. So, you know, speaking of academia, your your earliest or one of your early experiences in academia, studying with Ed Sof, could you talk about what it was like to study with him and some of the things you got from him? Yes. Well, you know, just like any other uh, uh, student of Ed's, it, 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 for me, it was a difficult thing at first because I had never had a such a demanding and hardcore teacher. <laughs> You know, that's what what I've heard. (laughs) Yeah. And especially his first year there was my first year. He'd come in and he was teaching adjunct. Wow. And he'd come back to Texas. He also had a a young son at the time. And, uh, you know, when he came back, you know, I would be, he'd say, you know, uh, you need to let the stick rebound off the symbol, you know? And I was like, well, it is. It is rebounding. He's like, no, it's not, God damn it, you know? And I was like, whoa, you know? <laughs> and it was great because the the way he taught, it really made you think about what you were doing. You know, even if, you know, you what you were doing was a, uh, uh, maybe a good decision, mm-hmm. he would uh, challenge it in ways to, you know, have you really think about what it was you're doing and how that was really serving the music. I, mm. You know, I'd, I'd play some stuff for him that I recorded and, you know, I thought it was pretty good, you know, and he would be like, oh, you know, listen to the, you know, you're stepping all over the piano player and... <laughs> You know, where's I don't hear the melody and, you know, and it, it was nice because it got me used to really thinking about what I was doing and knowing, wow, I have to really work on this stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. I I, I, I think a lot of times really great teachers, they, it's not so much them showing you what to play or how to play, but how to hear and opening up your ears more. And that's, man, that's such an important part of being a musician. <laughs> it is, you know, and, and I think the one exceptional thing about Ed is that all of his students, and there's a plethora of people that, you know, all over the world, really, but it, nobody really plays like Ed. You know, everybody is really, nobody really plays like each other. I mean, it was an amazing yeah. time when I was there at North Texas because there were so many great drummers there. And we really learned, at least for me, I learned as much from all of those other cats that were there Mm -hmm. as I did from my teachers that were there 
but Ed was always guiding us, you know, kind of in a, a unique way. And, uh, and I still stay in touch with him today. He's a mentor uh, for me in many, many different ways, even outside of music. And I just love him. I just yeah. love it, you know. Uh, so I know I've, I, I know a, a, a fair amount of his former students and everybody basically says exactly what you just said, which is, is, is amazing. And I, I've never had the pleasure of meeting him, but I I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I, you've probably seen, he, he put several videos on YouTube up. This is years ago about brush playing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember I, I clicked on one and I think it was the second or third one in a series and, mm-hmm. he, and he starts out the video. He says, well, we're back here with another brush video. And uh, this is the third one. And if you haven't watched the first two, for God's sake, don't start with this one. Go back. <laughs> and it was just, I thought, like, thank you. <laughs> thank you for saying that, you know, amazing. You know, and he, his teaching has involved, uh, evolved so much, you know, even from when I was studying with him and he you know, I've had him out here to UNC, fortunately, a few different times and his what he does with the students and how articulate he is. And it, it's just amazing. You know, I mean, yeah. he's always evolving. He's always listening to new music. You know, he's uh, uh, it's it's just a great inspiration. He, he turned me on to so much different music. And it's like you said, it's, you know, having the uh, teaching the ability to hear and a process where people are going to be lifelong learners. Right. I mean, that's, that's the deal. Yeah, for sure. Now, now that you've been doing so much teaching, what, what, what do you incorporate into your teaching that you got from Ed? Well, I mean, I I think, uh, well, a lot of things, you know, I don't use very many books in my teaching anymore. I pretty much, uh, I pretty much just use recordings and, and music and try to relate everything to that. Uh, but from Ed, I think just the, a lot of it was the motion stuff, you know, and making, making the drum work for you and understanding how motion is related to, uh, the sound. And, uh, and that's kind of a big focus for me ultimately, because, you know, it's this, you know, you got the sound and you got the silence, you know, and so much is, uh, there's so much focused on the, the sound and not really the silence. And, and it's the stuff that is in the silent part that makes everything that's actually heard, you know, uh, that that's where it puts it, you know? And so Mm -hmm. if I give that to my students, you know, uh, it really gives them something to hang on to just like it does me. You know, I spent too many years with people saying, you're rushing, you know, you're dragging, whatever. And I would think, Oh man, you know, I'm (laughs) rushing, you know, let me try to not rush. And then I'm like, you know, it's like, all you have to go is like, you know, uh, on trying not to, you know, yes. like trying to not play where you really feel it. And then all of a sudden you got fear in your beat, which is the worst thing that could ever happen. <laughs> and, uh, and so I thought, you know, how can I explain to my students, uh, uh, give them a good method that hopefully they could start hearing things. Um, you know, I actually use a, uh, a shaker stick 
it's uh then that's kind of one of the things that i i teach with uh let me wow. see if i have one to just give you an example yeah yeah please if I, if I, uh yeah so i use one of these uh innovative percussion multi rock <laughs> you know which are, are my dear friends and they've been so supportive over the years yeah but it's a very very you know uh <laughs> complex device which is an egg shaker and the best duct tape that you can get okay you know but you know i pretty much use this with all the students to start out with to understand how uh you know what has to happen with our body to make a certain sound you know if we're if we're playing you know uh quarter notes then you know our hand is moving in eighth notes you know, that's just how it is, you know, especially if you're playing in time. And so in order to hear that, this gives you the silence and the sound. So uh-huh. I'm playing straight eighth notes. It would just sound like this. And one and two and three and four. And if you get the silence in time, which is the egg shakers, like your secret decoder ring, then it really helps. And then if you want to play it, you know, uh, uh, triplet subdivision, that motion is going to be different. And of course, that motion with your hand is a shuffle rhythm, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're playing that quarter notes on the ride cymbal beat, but what's heard is really the same sound hitting the cymbal, but and one, and two, and three, and four, and one, and two, and three. Those, the motion to make those sounds is different. And if you can put that subdivision in motion, then uh, you really got a chance, you know, a shuffle. I don't know if you can hear that. Absolutely. You know, and so that has its rhythm. And then the ride cymbal beat, which is, you know, the most magical of all things, because on one and three, it gives you the the quarter note. Then you got the shuffle on two and four. And that sounds like... Man, so you have that ba da ba da ba da. da Man, da, that's ba, incredible. Da, da, da. Man. So that that seems to help, uh, you know, some of the students and and just taking certain rhythms, like you could take the Charleston rhythm, you know, the mm-hmm. dotted quarter, you know, ba ba, mm-hmm. right? And if you think about the prep stroke, the silent motion, then that's going to be this rhythm, da da do da. Do da do da, you know. <laughs> so if you hear what that, what the the uh, you know the uh, you were playing kind of the, I call it the skeleton rhythm with that uh, you know the the Charleston rhythm. Mm-hmm. Then you have like the complete rhythm that you hear to really make that sound in time. And as long as you can, you know, change the, uh, you know, the length of your stroke and everything, for me, if I can lock into that, then if I'm playing with the recording, it feels like they're they're playing along with me. Or if I'm playing with the click track or something, it feels like I'm not chasing them around like some, you know, gerbils habit trail or something (laughs) (laughs) no man that's that's brilliant that's i knew i was going to learn something today that's that's really great that's a a totally ingenious way of getting people to feel it correctly which is man that's great oh well thank you thank you you know it's uh it's it's fun you know it's fun to see uh 
you know, we, I, we, we all work on quarter notes, you know what I mean? It's like, that's what we all, like all comes down to, yep. so, uh, you know, s- simple, you know, supposedly simple things, you know, and, and if, if all of a sudden you can hear the silence in the stroke and you put that in time, you can hear that, yeah. then it really helps. It helps me be more confident in whatever tempo I'm playing. And I rely on that as opposed to just thinking, oh, you know, this is the tempo. And then all of a sudden I have fear in my beat, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, wow, man. man. No, it's, that's fantastic. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. So getting back to sort of the traje- trajectory of your career, what was one of the first gigs that you played professionally that 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 really sort of maybe uh, unlocked some some musical doors for you that helped you really grow as a as a player just in general? Uh, you know, uh, you mean when I was a, a younger a kid or, yeah. or as I professional? Oh, well, yeah, you know, maybe after school kind of. Oh, OK, well. Luckily, I got that opportunity to go out with Maynard's band when I was in school. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so, yeah, they had uh, you know asked me to come out actually a couple year, maybe a year before I did. They needed a drummer. And I didn't want to, uh, I just, I didn't really want to leave school. I was learning a lot there at the time. And then it just so happened that they needed a drummer uh, uh you know, the same semester that I was leaving. Wow. And so I, I, I wanted to finish school. And then I went and got put my drums on a plane and went up to Philadelphia and met them on a uh, met. They picked me up on the bus at the airport. And then I went and we just played the gig that night. I mean, wow. There was no, I, I can think of maybe one rehearsal that I had uh, for the time that I was on the band and uh just playing you know every night in dip, you know totally different situations from jazz clubs to high schools to you know and the uh, amazing thing about Maynard is he you know no matter what the gig was or whatever man he was in like 150 percent and mm-hmm. he, he expected that of his musicians and going, you know, like I said, going around the world and playing and doing a record with him, a, a live record. I think that was, you know, pretty much the, uh, you know, the beginning of me kind of doing a gig like that. Wow. That's amazing. When when did you get to Nashville then? Uh, let's see. I probably moved to Nashville in about 90 was in Maynard's band in 92. And then uh, I spent a little time back in Dallas to save up some money. And then Mm -hmm. uh, there was a friend of mine 
Unfortunately, he just passed away. His name was Dan Miller. And oh, yeah. Dan had moved up to New York, and uh, uh, Henry Hay and Brian Delaney, we all packed up this U-Haul, and we drove to New York, and I moved in with uh, Dan. Uh, and so I think that was – I think I moved to Nashville in around 1995, actually. Okay. And and then was 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 Crystal Gale's gig the sort of the, the, the first one that you got when you were in Nashville, the, the bigger the, – as far as bigger gigs go? Well, I uh, – actually, initially, I had gone to visit – Nashville and my buddy Chris Brown, who's another one of my mentors, he was on uh, Maynard's band before I was, and he had gone to North Texas and he had moved to Nashville about the same time that Jeff Coffin did. And so when I was coming up to visit, he had a couple gigs that he couldn't do, and so I subbed on those. One was with an uh, accordion player, <laughs> and it was a great bass player named Jim Ferguson. Yeah, and uh, we did that gig and. Jim said, "Hey, you know, what's the deal? Are you are you living here, you know?" And I was like, "Well, yeah, probably going to be living here, you know." <laughs> and he said, "Well, you know, I work for this singer Crystal Gale and she is looking for a drummer, you know. Wow. Her drummer's not really working out." And so like the next week we went to Houston to do uh, a couple of dates with their orchestra because she did a lot of pop states and stuff like that. And uh, that's how that kind of, you know, that that kind of started. So I had a gig when I moved there, which was really gave me some uh, uh, freedom. I didn't feel like I was having to get a job necessarily to just pay my bills, you know. Sure, sure. So, what was what was that gig like? I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I'm more of a jazz player myself. I certainly know who Crystal Gale is. But what was what was that gig like for you as far as, you know, from the drum chair? Well, you know, I say I've always, I didn't really seek out that gig, but uh, I've just been a drummer that has, you know, taken the opportunities that have been given to me. You know, her gig Mm -hmm. paid really good. You know, I could make in a day what I would make in a week with Maynard, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I had to learn to fit into that music and uh, play with an orchestra, you know, and hold, hold it together, you know, and... Uh, her band was really good at that time. Like Jim was playing bass, and uh, Mike Loudermilk was is a great guitar player. He's John D. Loudermilk's son, uh, so that led to other opportunities. Uh, Buddy Spiker was the fiddle player in her band, who was one of the A Team guys. I mean, played on Bob Dylan's records, like everybody, you know, and. He really was helpful when I moved to town because he had a Western swing band, and I didn't know anything about that either. Yeah. So they we would play uh, once a week at this place called Wolfie's that was on Broadway, and he had, that was a great band. And I learned about you know Bob Wills and Spade Cooley and all these different bands that I had no idea. But again, you know, it was a gig, and I was just trying to fit in. Yeah. Everybody would come down, uh, you know, to play this particular gig uh, or, or to uh, to check it out. And a lot of people ended up sitting in, you know, people like Bill Monroe. You know, I've never I never played Uncle Penn before, you know, 
which has like a two four bar that I kept screwing up, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and Merle Haggard would come and sit in and. I guess the best thing was just having a regular regular place to play because I could say, hey, I'm playing here every Tuesday night or, or Monday night. I can't remember which one it was. And that allowed me to get some uh, some of the first recording sessions that I was doing there. Wow. So, and since Buddy was one of the older cats, a lot of times it was uh, the older cats that I got to do those things with. So Buddy Emmons on steel guitar, Bob Moore on bass, um, Pete Wade on guitar, uh, you know. So, I, you know, I learned how to play a Ray Price shuffle. You know, there's all these other kind of grooves, sure. which is basically a brush in the right hand and a, and a stick. But, you know, if you're – you know, people say, oh, well, this is a Ray Price shuffle. You know, I didn't really know what that was or, uh, you know, sure. in the Nashville number system, I had no idea, you know, like a 2-4 bar is like a number that's circled and uh, they would say, oh, this is a diamond. I'm like, a diamond? What the heck is that? But it's basically just a whole note where time stops, you know. Uh and wow. so it's kind of an ingenious system because it's really fast i mean you know they might have a songwriter come in there and just play the tune you know on piano or guitar it wasn't necessarily now where you have like a lot of midi demos and then everybody would be in there writing out their chart you know and 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 be very quick doing it. Wow, know? man! I guess, yeah, okay, well, the intro is eleven forty four fifty five eleven. You know, which is that's the the you know the chords. You know, uh, but it just had. It's like okay, well, that's the intro. You know, wow, man! So I could just and so I kind of had to learn that. You know, and uh, and I ended up playing a lot of jazz in Nashville, which was really ironic you know <laughs> yeah uh, yeah I, I i think maybe one of the things that i uh, helped me get a lot of session work there was that i could play with wire brushes you wow. know uh one, one of the first sessions that i did there it was actually eddie bears who's one of the great you know he played on everything and he hired me to play on a record that his wife was doing and i'm thinking you know what, what you know why are you hiring me but that's why he was hiring me because he knew that there were they wanted a lot of brushes on the project and uh and so you know i started doing you know records with different people that artists that were having you know recording an orchestra there and so Wow, man. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm I just tried <laughs> to fit in, you know what I mean? It's kind of yeah, like, absolutely. Let's, yeah. let's, let's, let's talk if we could for a minute about recording, because I know for, for a lot of musicians, a lot of drummers, it, it can be very intimidating, you know, especially for, for younger drummers who are just sort of getting into the, the business. What, what are, what are some things that you always keep in mind when you're in the studio, as far as your playing goes, just kind of general stuff that, you know, when you're, when you're in the studio, in the, in the studio, do you have like a very different frame of mind than when you're playing live or is it the same? Is it a bit different? Well, I think a lot of it is the same, you know, mm -hmm. it depends on what, you know, what kind of project you're doing, sure. you know, and, sure. and there, and there's certain things 
like in a place like Nashville where everything is recorded live, you know, that was a nice thing. It's like everybody was in the studio together and the music was cultivated as a group. It wasn't Mm. like, Hey, you know, put your part on later or it was all, that was the thing. It was a full band. And I, I, I loved that, Mm. but, uh, but there was a lot of lessons learned. You know, they record a lot of things to uh, a click there for various reasons, you know, overdubs, which is, fine you know but i went to do this session that had i remember early on i had a yamaha rx5 drum machine and at this this was kind of before a lot of pro tools where the engineer would run the click for you and so everybody was expected to you know the drummers to run their own click and send that feed to the control room and i had this rx5 and i was using the rim shot you know for a click sound and then they had to overdub a bunch of uh, strings on it. And uh, all the string players were just really upset because I didn't use this one click sound because they like to use, they have one ear on and one off on the headphones. And so my click sound, that rim shot, you know, had a tendency to bleed more. And I realized these the cats that were really working a lot, they all used an MPC and they had this special click in it that was more like a pulse. And so I'm like, well, you know, okay, I, sorry, I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, but I, I think one of the differences is that uh, is knowing that you're in a service role, you know, mm. if somebody has you come and play on their record, there could be all kinds of people that are, uh, you know, uh, different types of producers, you know, people that know a lot about music and then people that don't know anything about music. And so, but you got to try to communicate with them and make them feel comfortable. And if, if, if somebody's asking you to do something, then, you know, you need to do it, you know, and you need to, to, to try it. And I think I'd come from a thing where I was, I got to do whatever I wanted to do, you know, and that's what people, people were happy with that. Yeah. And then when people started telling me, uh, you know, uh, that's not working or you you know, uh, we, can we try something else or can we overdub a symbol there? I had a thing where I was just talking to the producer and I was playing a thing again with wire brushes. And he was like, yeah, at the, on that bridge section, I think you need to overdub like stick, you know, a stick, you know, leave, we're going to leave the brushes. So I was like, well, I can go to sticks. He's like, oh no, we're going to do the overdub. And I was like, well, you know, that's not really how this music is played. I try to explain really kindly, but you know what? I overdubbed it. <laughs> You know, I'm like, okay, you want it? That's that's fine, and yeah. hopefully, it's in service to the music. You know, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that's one of the one of the real arts of of doing this is being able to take all kinds of direction from no direction at all to people who are just dictating almost everything. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I felt bad, you know, at first. Yeah. And uh, like, oh, I'm, I'm not able to, you know, please this person. And I thought maybe something was wrong. And I realized uh, that that is normal. <laughs> you know, that's what normal is. Uh, playing in a big band when I was in school, you know, I 
felt like everybody was happy for me to be there, mm-hmm. you know, and that. But then when I got on Maynard's band, not everybody really liked the way that I played. And so I thought, well, you know, this is really different. I felt, uh, you know, uh, had some doubt, you know, I'm like, yeah. wow, you know, this is, uh, it was something for me to really learn. And then I realized, talking to so many of my mentors that, you know, were with Woody's band and Basie's band, Stan Kenton's band, that that's just the way that it is. You know, even for all of my mentors, there was somebody in the band or multiple people that hated the way that they played. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you have to, uh, you know, learning that that's part of the deal. You know, I can I can deal with it with a smile on my face now and just yeah. be like, well, you know, I've been doing this since I was a kid. Am I going to stop because this person doesn't like the way that I play? I mean, maybe I don't like your ligature, you know what I mean? But I don't <laughs> think you can say, hey, do you think you could change your sound for me? You know, no, no thanks. You know? Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a great point. I mean, there's, in most cases, there's one of us and there's sometimes several horn players, you know, and, and yeah, it's true. It's kind of like, you know, I would never even think to ask a bass player to use different strings or, to, you know, yeah, it's interesting. Everybody knows everything about the drums. I, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody knows that this symbol, I need this symbol behind my solo and I need this, you know, and uh, uh, everybody just seems to know everything about the drums. And so they, you know, they, they like to just comment all the time about that things that are frankly offensive, you know, that we yeah. would never say, you know, yeah. so accepting people, of course, all the great musicians, you know, that we know are, you know, that's in the jazz world, you know, pretty much that's what they, they want you to be you. Right. I mean, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so getting, getting back to jazz, um, who, who are, who are some of your, your, your biggest influences as drummers in, in that, in that genre? I mean, you know, we all have a lot, but you know, who are, who are a few of yours that are really, really a big part of your, your, your life? (laughs) Well, I think, uh, well, first of all, initially it was those drummers that I saw locally, you know, mm-hmm. saw them here. And of course I started buying a whole lot of records, but one of the things that Ed says, getting back to Soph, you mm-hmm. know, is that usually he says his students will find somebody like in, in jazz music, maybe that we haven't listened to that much that they connect with. And then through that one person, they, uh, you know, have advances in their playing and, you know, that inspires them how to learn basically. And that drummer for me, and Ed would tell you this was Mel Lewis. Oh, wow. Because I had, uh, you know, there were certain things about playing in a big band that I didn't really do well. You know, I, I just didn't. And so we would play a lot of those, uh, that and Mel charts, you know, and, and so at that time, I, I just made a point, like, if I didn't know a tune, then I would write it down. And I would go to like the earliest recording of it. And, and check it out and imitate it, you know, and, uh, and that gave me confidence. You know, I started building confidence because I was tired of playing even, you know, just standards that I didn't really know, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and I realized, okay, well, uh, you know, 
if we went to hear a band and they're playing stairway to heaven and the cat's like, I don't know, I don't know it, but if you got a chart on it, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, like that's iconic, just like yeah. certain other, you know, things in the jazz world. So uh, we would never want to hear that. Right. You know, right, and right. so I, that gave me a lot of confidence, but I listened to a lot of those records and I started to hear things that he was doing to support the band in different stickings and how, you know, you didn't really just have, you know, younger musicians, they start off, they are looking at that page, right? Which is, you know, a curse in itself, but you have the figures and then you have time and the figures aren't a part of the time. And it's hard to make that connection until you for me until you hear somebody like mel and the rub-a-dub stickings and the different ways that he would navigate these things with the band without the feeling of the time stopping yeah and so that was uh he was kind of the one that really you know i got to meet him one time and that was at a uh he came to see the one o'clock band play at at one of the when it was just i-a-j-e before yeah and he was in a wheelchair at the time but i got to meet him and that was the last time he ever played he had they had the the band was playing there uh uh but dennis mccrell was playing he played the gig and then mel came up and he played to you and he didn't even play the hi-hat it was just the brushes the whole time and it was like the most Mm. beautiful understated kind of thing you know it was it it was a great lesson in itself but you look at all those drummers you know i mean why did they why did people want to play with them you know like billy higgins you know like they're they're just magical people and they're able to sort support uh people in a way that actually makes them sound better than what they really do and to me what is that i mean that's just magic right i mean absolutely no, it's a, no, it's a, it, it, it totally is. I, I, you know, I, more to that point, I heard a really interesting story about Billy Higgins. Um, this, this person was telling me that he was talking to, uh, this was years ago, obviously, uh, another horn player who had played some gigs with Billy Higgins. Mm-hmm. And, and this friend of mine was saying like, Oh, what was it like playing with Billy Higgins? And this guy said, well, it was, it was okay. I mean, he played good, but he really didn't do anything. And this friend of mine told me that it took him a while to realize that Billy Higgins is the kind of musician who matches the energy of everyone else. So yeah. if you if you come with no energy and not much happening, you ain't going to get much from him. You know, yeah. he's, he's he's matching you and then and then helping you. But if you don't give him anything, he's not going to give you much. He's not one of those kind of drummers. It's very interesting insight into his playing. You know, yeah. He I got to meet him one time. All these drummers that would come to. Uh, you know, Soph got all these great older legendary cats to come for this jazz lecture series down there. And I had this old uh, 83 Nissan pickup truck. <laughs> and uh, It had a Georgia license plate with the big peach in the middle. And, uh, and I would get to go pick these guys up at the airport. And uh, uh, I don't have that car now, but there's so many different people to go to that car. And I remember riding with him and, and having some great talks. And I was talking about how, you know, I was 
studying, you know, all of the older musicians and everything. And I think there was a recording that I, that we listened to. I probably made him listen to it on the way. And, uh, and I remember him just saying to me as he was like, you know, we can never look back. He's like, we can just, you know, uh, you know, we can just, you know, move forward in what we're doing. And he was just trying to encourage me in his own way to just not, uh, uh, discount uh, being who I was, you know, like wow. more so than just uh, uh, just playing, you know, stickings or just making sound, you know, it's, it's where you come from and, you know, uh, uh, all of those different things. And we can hide, we can try to hide those things, but, you know, man, I'm from Georgia, you know, I grew up listening <laughs> to, to, you know, the Almond Brothers, you know, sure. I still love the Almond Brothers, but there's, you know, some mojo in that Southern rhythm, you know, that, instead of trying to suck that out of me, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that's, there's things that are unique to me that I just kind of need to celebrate and not be so hard on myself, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's, I think that's a, an incredibly valuable insight and point for all people because yeah, everybody brings something unique to the table. You know, everyone has a different life experience and that's, that's what makes it so great. You know? So I think that's a great, it's a really great insight, man. Um, you know, continuing along in the in the jazz mode, who who have been some of your favorite band leaders to 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 work with, and could you talk a little bit about why you enjoyed working with them? Uh, band leaders. Well, I I think you know when I was in back when I was in Nashville, actually, that was kind of the time that I started to meet a lot of jazz musicians and if they were coming through town you know usually i would get to play with them which wow. was great so in nashville really that's where i started my association with a lot of jazz musicians that i would come to play with uh over the years uh you know uh joy de francesco you know he came to town it was the first time that i played with him and of course byron was his drum i was never his drummer but i did a bunch of gigs if he would be coming to the south uh you know then i would go play that you know if he yeah. was coming out here you know to colorado i would play that and uh and we would always have you know talks about music and you know what he liked we did a uh, record in uh, nashville with a singer named manny Selleck. And that was a great experience. You know, I remember he, you know, we would record a take, right? There was a producer there. We would record a take and it was really good, you know, and, uh, and then the producer would say, well, you know, that sounded really good. Let's do another one. And Joy was kind of like, well, you know, I mean, it's only going to be different. You know, it's, it's, you know, what's better, you know what I mean? This is this music and, you know, and so I was like, well, it's true, you know, it's only, yeah. it's only going to be different. And I think sometimes we think about uh, now everything is just so under the microscope, you know, if it's not perfect, then it's not, it, you know, it's not, no longer valid. Yeah. And uh, the thing is, is 
I, I think I'm pretty sure if you look, say, on the Tom Lord discography and you look at somebody like Mel Schedule or Don Lamond or whatever, you you see uh, or Percip, you know, whoever you look at there and you, they could be recording pretty much every day. You could, you know, see absolutely sort of track their life by who they're playing with. And I think that. It, you know, people at that time maybe didn't listen to playbacks as much. I mean, I don't really know, but just, you know, it was like, hey, man, we just recorded that and it's cool. And, you know, whatever, you know, what we would say is rough around the edges today, those are some of the things that we love the most. Absolutely. Recordings. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's funny. We all want to be perfect, but the things that we love about music is the uniqueness and imperfection. And yeah, they're I not think. perfect. Yeah, absolutely. No, you it's know. amazing. So I, I learned that from uh, you know him. Uh, I learned a lot from J.D. Souther, who was uh, oh. you know, he wrote all the big hits for the Eagles. You know, he, they say he was like the fifth Eagle. You know, wow. So okay. Wrote like the best of my love and heartache tonight, uh, and uh, you know all these great tunes. And then he did. Uh, he had come out to hear me play uh, at at a certain place. I used to play regularly. I'm trying to remember where that was. And he wanted to do a new record. You know, something really different. And he put us in. Wanted us all in the same room. So it was Jeff, I think Bela Fleck played on a tune, this great pianist, uh, Chris Walters. And uh, so he put us in the control room at Blackbird Studios, which is, you know, a big control room. So we all got in there and the, the uh, engineer was Nico Bolas, who's somebody that I listened to, you know, producing our uh, engineering, Neil Young's records, all kinds of stuff. Mm hmm. And so uh, we were in this room playing and here's this guy that's this songwriter who was always, who valued those things that we were just out talking about, mm -hmm. you know, not being this perfect thing to the point of the first record of his that I played on uh, one of the tunes. We were there in the studio and he's like, I got this new tune. It's called the secret handshake of fate. That's, that's the name of the tune. And he said, uh, I, we were like, great, you know, teach it to us and we'll do it. And he said, you know, no, I, I, I just want to record it on the fly. I don't want to play it for you. I don't want to do anything. Let's just, wow roll the tape and do it. And so he starts playing, you know, his kind of riff on the guitar and then the bass comes in. And of course we had to punch in some of the bass notes. I mean, the cat's not a soothsayer, you know, right. <laughs> but, but what we recorded, uh, it ended up being like 13 minutes of music and they were going to cut it down, but he decided he's like, no, this 13 minutes is like perfect. So that's what it is on the, wow. on the record. And so I, I thought, wow, you know, here's somebody that is wants to do the exact opposite of what so many people were doing. Um, there's wow. a great producer named Charlie Peacock that was in Nashville, and he's produced a lot of like contemporary Christian artists, but he's a very creative guy. And he, he did this record where uh, it was basically instrumental music and, and joey baron played on part of it i played on you wow. know maybe three 
cuts on it. And, uh, and at the time I would ask people, you know, well, what is this? You know, I didn't know if it was going to be some sort of singer and I didn't really know what drums to take, you know, right. You know, uh, and I said, Hey, you know what, what drums, you know, what are we doing? You know, what kind of drums you want to take? And he said, man, you bring whatever drums you want. You know, I want you, you, this is, uh, you know, you, and he did the same thing that JD did. And I took my, little you know jazz kit at the time and uh and then he did the same thing he's like well i'm gonna play it down but i want you to i want you to play along and just do what you hear and most of one of those tunes is that take because he wanted you know champion the reaction in the first heat of the moment when you're not necessarily trying to play perfect and that sure. that's right i forget the name of that record but it's it's an interesting project for it sounds like it yeah wow man that's yeah you, you've had so many varied experiences it's really cool to talk to someone that has done so much musically that's 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 different it's it's, it's great man um we've got a few minutes left and i i kind of wanted to end by by just asking you what are some of the things that you work on and practice today in for for yourself well, I, you know, have been revisiting, you know, trying to get my bass drum quieter, you know, like if I'm playing uh, Brazilian music, I mean, my Brazilian playing, I love Brazilian music, but it sounds like the Almond Brothers. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's some respect, you know, I mean, I, I, that, I'm not from Brazil, you know what I mean? I love that music and I you know, play my students like Edison Machado. And uh, we listen to Milton Banana, who's one of my favorites. And yeah, for sure. And I, I, and Erto, holy cow, you know, mm -hmm. I, I listen to that stuff and I, I love it, but I'm always like, man, if I could play, you know, my bass drum quieter playing those types of that type of music or, uh, so I kind of work on that, you know, it seems like a basic thing, but it's hard yeah. for uh, and then, you know, I work on trying to just be relaxed, more relaxed when I'm playing. Um, I seem to do a better job with my hands than I do with my legs and my, my feet. Um, me too. Uh, I'm, I'm in the same boat with that. Yeah. I, I, I struggle with that. What are, what, what's, what's some of the stuff you do to work on that? Is, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Do you just sort of try to focus on it as you're practicing or? Well, I just, you know, some of the ways that I teach that stuff is I imagine that uh, there's that I'm a, like a marionette puppet. Right. And then if I had a string tied to my middle toe, you know what I mean? Then I want to be able to I want the res relaxed position to be, you know, not just with, uh, uh, you know, my feet heavily down i see that you know a lot of my students you know they learn how to play you know really heal up where everything that the the relaxing point supposedly is where the beater is against the head or the hi-hat is just completely closed as hard as it can so how can you you know you got to work to get the foot back up you know Abs absolutely you know so you know i talk about that marionette uh, puppet thing where you're pulling it up and it's the same thing with, you know, trying to, I try to match the speed 
of my uh, hands, you know, if I'm playing the quarter notes. So I have that top of the stroke in my bass drum. You know, if I had a little shaker on the bass drum pedal, which I've done before, and then <laughs> it, just, it just reveals that I really suck at it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> but I kind of practice that way. You know, I, ha I have to really practice, uh, you know, playing heel down and still being able to get kind of a bigger sound out of my bass drum when I need to. And uh, and then playing the hi-hat. I, I went and got to hang out with Joe LaBarbera, who, uh, you know, is just so wonderful, such a beautiful person. He just put out a new record, you know, that. Oh, I didn't know that a live record and uh i just ordered my vinyl copy you know nice, so man. i'm gonna look forward to seeing him. but anyways we were i was over at his house and we were playing together and uh you know trading a little bit and he was like yeah you know that's uh you know that, that sounds good and he's like well, why don't we let's do it again you know and but this time you know just keep your heel on the pedal of the hi-hat you know and I was like, he like could sniff out my weakness. You know what I mean? He's like one of those. Yeah, and so yeah. he would go right to it, you know, and then he would like a doctor, he would write a prescription, you know, for <laughs> to help. And, uh, and I just love that stuff. I love it, you know, and, yeah. you know, anytime I can spend time with uh, somebody like that is, I just, you know, cherish that. It Even is, though man. I feel sad, you know. <laughs> You know, like, oh, anyways, they're all, very, they're all very encouraging, though, but it's nice to, you know, for people to maybe care about you enough to actually mention things that they hear, you know, that absolutely. it's not really criticism as it is love, you know, and absolutely, absolutely. I wish, I wish more younger students understood that. <laughs> it's like, no, I don't dislike you. I'm trying to help you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, what are you here for? You know, why, you know, right, right, right. That's yeah. It's amazing. I, I, I struggle too with, with bass drum playing. I actually am a heel down player. I always have been. So okay. I actually struggle when I need more volume, especially if I need to play more notes. Like mm -hmm. I have a, a pretty low threshold for being able to play heel up and actually control it. So it's yeah. challenging, man. It's it's a never ending cycle of just working on stuff, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, to be able to, you know, Solf, he would always say, you know, you need to be able to play, you know, at every tempo and at every different dynamic level, you know, it was like one of those things across the board. And uh, and so that's always kind of stuck with me. And so playing certain dynamics is hard for me at yep. a certain time and maintaining an intensity in the music. You know, Jeff Hamilton was here at, at, at school about a week ago. And he, you know, I love Jeff. He's, you know, oh, yeah. one of my mentors and heroes. Yeah. You know, and they played this Brazilian thing. And, you know, I mean, his touch on the bass drum was just, you know, like out of the realm of anything that I am doing currently. I hear you. And, uh, and I was just like, wow, you know, I, and it's so relaxed, you know, it's just because, you know, tension is, is uh, you know, is evil. It is. It is, man. It's the devil. <laughs> I know. So it is, man. Well, you know, th thank you so very much, man, for taking the time. I know how busy you are, and I, I it's been such a pleasure to kind of meet you in person and, and to get a chance to talk. I, I thank you for everything that you do, man. It's really inspirational, and uh, 
I don't know what else to say, man. You know, I'm, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you having me. And of course, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I know you already, you know, before <laughs> we even met, but, yeah, uh, but I'm really, you know, I'm honored that you would ask me to come on and, and be on the show here. So it's yeah, always, man. it's always great uh, talking to you and, you know, uh, anytime I look forward to hanging when I get up, you know, absolutely. Absolutely, man. We'll figure it out, but we'll, we'll definitely do a part two, man. Cause there's a lot of other stuff I want to ask you about. So we'll, we'll, we'll get that happening in the future for sure, man. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, man. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Okay. That is it for this week's episode. I need more intro beats. I need listener questions. I need suggestions. So shoot them over to drum podcast at gmail.com. Um, we'll be back with a gear focused episode. I think next week, um, but yeah, make sure you, um, you know what? I think we're three reviews on iTunes under 100. So if three of you could head over to iTunes and drop a review, give us a five-star rating, just so we can get over that 100 review hump. It's been kind of sitting there for months. So I appreciate you all listening. I appreciate the feedback and the support. Um, so yeah, let's uh, go practice and I'll see you next week. <laughs>